0: Andrew told me that in speaking on Esther, we've all heard the story before, right? You guys have all heard the story of Esther? And it seems kind of mundane to go over Esther again, right? But these past few months that I've been struggling over commentaries, scripture itself, um, in prayer, and just studying Esther, I've learned so much. And I hope that these past few weeks with Daily Walk um, and through the sermons that you've learned a little bit of something new as well. Um, So, as we close the book of Esther today, we're also closing the series, Um, and so we're closing that with the idea of environment in the personal. So, going through the book of Esther, we broke down environment in three different ways. We broke it down in peripheral, uh, proximal, and then personal today. So, we've talked about our peripheral environments, right? We've talked about how this affects the way we talk, the way we dress, the way we think and act. Um, We've talked that... Peripheral, a lot of the time, shapes us with little to no of our say or our own control. Um, And this challenged us to look at our surroundings and acknowledge the way that we're being shaped by peripheral, but not to let it take full control over our lives. We've talked about proximal environment. We've talked about how who we choose to surround ourselves with affects us. We talked about how who we spend the most of our time with can affect how we talk, how we act, how we think. And we talked about how it's important of who we let into this sphere of our proximal environment and who we seek out. Last last week we took some time to make lists of the five people who we spend the most time with and then the five people who influence us the most. And this caused us to have to process a little bit of who we're being influenced by. We looked at Esther and Haman as really good examples of this. Esther sought out Mordecai in her circle, who spoke really hard truth to her, but who challenged her and who called her to be a woman of God. Whereas Haman surrounded himself with his friends and family that just boosted his ego and gave him advice that he wanted to hear himself. These past few weeks have given us some time to process how we're being shaped by the environments around us. To understand why we are the way that we are and do the things that we do. But we've also understood that these environments do not rule completely over our life. Esther, a Jewish orphan girl, is growing up in a time where her peripheral environment is causing her people to be physically free, but they don't have the space to necessarily be feeling free. She's living in the capital city Susa under Medo-Persian rule with a king who throws parties that last months, drinks uncontrollably, and makes hasty decisions under anyone's advice, such as banishing Queen Vashti after only hours of discussion. Her peripheral world rapidly creeps into her proximal world when she becomes queen. She is no no longer surrounded by her Jewish cousin, her Jewish friends, and family. That community has left, and she's now surrounded by handmaidens, eunuchs, and servants, and the king. She's around people that she's either supposed to serve or be served by. Esther reaches through what seems to be a fairly close proximal environment and reaches out to Mordecai, her cousin. He challenges her and doesn't let her become overwhelmed or restricted by these other environments. He reminds her that there's a plan and that maybe the reason she's in the position, this such position, is for such a time as this. And in such a time as this, we're able to see Esther's personal environment, who she is at her very core, cut through her peripheral environment and cut through her proximal environment and ultimately save her life, her people's lives, and fulfill the commandment that God gave Saul years ago. When you break these three environments down, you end up with peripheral environment, this being the way people look on the outside. Then you have your proximal environment, the observation of how people act. Today, we're talking about personal, and this is the revealing of who people are at their core. We found Esther is not in the ideal peripheral or proximal environments, hiding her identity as a Jew and for all intents and purposes looking like a Gentile queen, but this hasn't defined her. What we look like on the outside, and sometimes even how we act, does not define us. I'll say that one more time. How we look and how we act does not define us. That doesn't mean we shouldn't care about how we look to others or how we treat others or what we say to them, but it's not what defines us at our core. The first recalibrate question I want us to process together will be found in your worship guide. So if you don't have a worship guide, go ahead and put your hand up and we can make sure you get one. Everyone has one, No one snuck past our greeters this morning? Okay, we need one worship guide over here for Sherry. Perfect, so our first recalibrate question is, what environment do you let define you the most? I remember back in high school, as all silly teenagers do, I got into trouble for something super, super dumb with my friends. And I remember um, we were getting talked to about, you know, what we had done wrong and the consequences and whatnot. And I remember our pastor looked at us and said, this doesn't define you. And it sounded really nice then and I said, oh yeah, that's great, thank you. But now as I've grown older, those words ring more true to me that our actions don't necessarily define us. Of course, we have consequences, but the definition of who you are does not rest in the decisions that you make. It's hard statement for us to process how people look and act is a really good reflection of who they are, but this doesn't define them. Why? Well, who defines you? Do you allow others to define you? Do you define yourself? Or does God define you? It's a difficult question, and I, and I don't want you to leave here thinking that you can say or do whatever you want, and it just doesn't matter at all. But if we were to find what we look like to others, how we act, and even how we truly are on the inside, I think all of us would be in a little bit of trouble. We're in a world where we seek out definition from others. My generation is one that's so focused on looking cool and acting cool that we're not really that cool at all anyways. If you went to the gym and you didn't post it on Facebook, did you really go to the gym? If you had a really good meal and you didn't post it on Instagram, was the food really that good? You see, we like the likes that we get from our posts more than we enjoy the hikes or the scenery or the family or the food that we're around. We find ourselves in between a rock and a hard place thinking that if we look and act like good people, then others will think of that of ourselves, and so will we. But where does Jesus fit into all of this? If others can define us, or if we can define us, why do we need him to define us? I don't know about you guys, but I need Jesus to define me. The problem is, we often use our peripheral and our proximal environments to cover up what's going on on the personal. Haman tried to use his peripheral and proximal um, environments to do this exact thing. He even bragged to his family about how great everything was going for him. How he was so rich and he had so many wonderful things and he got promoted and he was eating with the royalty every single day. On the outside, things looked great for Haman, but on the inside environment, he was rotting. And although Esther's peripheral and proximal environments didn't seem so great, her personal environment was flourishing. So now we've come to the point in the story where Esther's personal environment has cut through these other two. When she does this, we see Haman's environments have turned on him. Those great peripheral and proximal environments that made him look like he was royal and wealthy have now completely collapsed. No amount of wealth, power, or fame is able to cover up what's on the inside anymore. We left off at the end of chapter 7 with Haman being impaled on the gallows that he intended for Mordecai. So we're going to begin in chapter 8 today. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, that's going to be page 456, or you can go on your phone or in your own Bible, but it'll be Esther chapter 8 and 456 for the pew Bibles. The text says, On that day, King Azurus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is the first time in the book of Esther where everyone is out in the open. Esther has come forward as a Jew, claiming them as her people. And by doing so, she has exposed Haman as an enemy. And now Mordecai's true identity of his relationship with Esther is also revealed. Chapter 8 begins on a pretty good note. Esther's still alive. Haman's dead. Mordecai is promoted. But by verse 3, we find Esther at the feet of the king in tears. Esther begs the king to fix this problem. She says, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let the order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agite and the son of, of Haman, Hamedetha. These, these names, I love it, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king replies, behold, I have given you the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with my ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. With the second edict made by Mordecai, we see a balancing act take place. So let's take a look at the two edicts side by side. Scholars have pointed out the similarities between the two edicts are even more obvious in the Hebrew text, but we'll be comparing Haman's edict in chapters 3, verses 12 to 15 with this new edict by Mordecai in chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. So just hear them out. Haman's Haman's edict starts off with, Then the king's secretaries were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Mordecai says, the king's secretaries were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, and the twenty-third day, Haman's. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written, and the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and all the officials of the people, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language, Mordecai's. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded, to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in every province in its own script and to every people in its own language. Sounding familiar? Haman's continues on. It was written in the name of King Asuerus and sealed with the king's ring. Letters were sent by couriers to the king's provinces giving orders to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder the goods. And then Mordecai says, he wrote the letter in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the king's ring, and sent them by mounted couriers, riding on fast seeds, bred from the royal herd. By these letters, the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to assemble to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them with their children, women, and to plunder the goods on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Asuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Haman's ends. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation, calling all people to be ready for that day. The couriers went quickly, by the order of the king, and the decree was issued to the city from the capital of Susa. Mordecai's ends. A copy was issued as a decree in every province and published to all peoples, and the Jews were ready in that day to take revenge on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift steeds, buried out, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in the capital of Susa. We're reminded here that the law of Haman could not be changed or revoked. It could only be counteracted by another edict. This sheds light on the bigger picture of the Jews' struggle. If you've been keeping up with Daily Walk the past few weeks, you've probably read 1 Samuel 15 and recognized that this struggle between Haman, the Agagite, and Mordecai, the Jew of Benjamin, transcends time and space that they're in right now. Haman represents an entire people that have fought to destroy God's people since their exit from Egyptian slavery. It's not just Haman and his edict that Esther is fighting against. It's the people that Haman represents. As you've been reading through Daily Walk, you may have noticed that many times Haman is formally introduced as an Agagite. This being in contrast to Mordecai being from the tribe of Benjamin. If we go back to the story of King Saul, we realize that these two are not just representing themselves as individuals, but they represent a bigger storyline. So let's take a look at this bigger storyline. We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you want to flip in your pew Bibles, that'll be page 263. So we'll start off in verse 1 in 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike him down and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. If we press a little further into the story and picking up in verse seven, and Saul defeated the Amalekites, which is east of Egypt, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good he would not utterly destroy. All that was despised and worthless was devoted to destruction. So we have a problem here. Samuel confronts Saul, who greets him claiming that he has kept the command of God. So just listen to this conversation between the two of them. Saul greets Samuel. Blessed be to you in the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel (laughs) ripped words with. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Ooh, this is getting kind of awkward. Saul goes, well, I brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel loses it a little bit. He says, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission to completely destroy the Amalekites. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul goes on to make excuses that they brought back the livestock for sacrifices for God, which Samuel quickly dismisses. He says, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. God's message to Saul was to completely wipe out the Amalekites. All the people, all their goods, all their livestock. God called Saul to do something and he didn't follow through. So if you look at your worship guides, the second question we're gonna process together is, what are you sacrificing in vain to avoid what God is really calling you to do? Saul didn't wanna do what he was called. So instead, he thought he would make up for it with sacrifices, but that's not what God asked for. God's calling can be scary at times. Most of the time, what he asks of us doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it even forces us to see God outside of the box that we put him in. So what happens when God calls you to do something that you don't understand? Do you step out in faith and obedience? Or do you cover it up with sacrifices and other good deeds? Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, God hasn't called me to do anything yet. Or I don't really know what the calling on my life is yet. If that's what you're thinking right now, you're ignoring the call of God. Jesus not only says, follow me, he says, take up your cross and follow me. So where are our crosses? Saul failed to follow the command of God. The king of God's people didn't follow God's calling. So now a Jewish orphan has become a Gentile queen for such a time as this. Although the consequences of Saul's mess are felt for years, God doesn't leave this mess. We often wonder where God is in the story of Esther, but by understanding the story of Saul and the emphasis on Haman's family tree, it's clear that Saul's incompletion of God's call has fallen into the lap of Esther. Saul's insufficiencies had to be amended. For me, this sheds light on the bigger picture of humanity. That humankind's insufficiencies have to be amended for. Our individual stories are only part of the bigger picture as well. We can understand this a bit more clearly from what Paul says to his letter to the Romans. I want you to turn in your pew Bibles now forward into the New Testament to page 1043. And we're going to look at chapter 5 of the book of Romans. We'll begin with verse 18, and what we're looking at here is the beginning of sin in Adam. And that sin that Adam and Eve had echoes the consequences of death to all. But now, through Jesus, we are given life and righteousness. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so as by one man's obedience many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Haman's edict couldn't be ignored or revoked. What was law was law. Everyone knew it. No matter how much Esther wished she could simply just take it back or have it ignored, it couldn't be ignored. The only way to fix it was to fight law with law, edict with edict. Commentators point out in their studies of the two edicts that the narrative description of the composition context and publication of the second edict underscores that it is very much modeled after the first. Every element of the first edict finds its counterpart in the second. This is an extraordinarily important, it's extraordinarily important for understanding the text. It's not that Mordecai was anxious to destroy, to kill, or to annihilate, but rather that the second edict must counteract the first. Every detail was designed with a restoration of balance in mind. The law made by Haman couldn't be ignored, changed, or revoked. It could only be counteracted. Our sin can't be ignored, changed, or revoked. It has to be counteracted. Jesus is the counteraction to our sin. Every detail of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is designed not only with restoration of balance in mind, but of something even greater. With these final chapters of Esther, there's one big question that we can't quite ignore, and that's how do we deal with the violence and death that takes place to answer that we have to ask ourselves is this violence the second edict goes out to allow the Jews to defend themselves not to seek out killing like the first edict did this decree goes out and according to Esther 817 it says many people of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them when the day came there were still some who attacked and the Jews did defend themselves those who attacked the Jews were actually cooperating with Haman and Amalekite and this made them the enemies of God. In slaying those who attacked them, the Jews, were not, the Jews were only doing to the enemy what King Saul had refused to do in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Esther asked the king that the same may be done on the second day and that the ten sons of Haman be hung on the gallows. They had died on the first day fighting against the Jews, showing that they had the same spirit as their father. Chapter nine, verse 16 tells us, for the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay hands on the plunder. This verse tells us two very important things there were 75,000 people who still attacked the Jews. They only killed those who hated them, and they still attacked. They didn't lay hands on the plunder is the second thing. Remember King Saul and how he was given instructions to completely destroy, and how they took the best from the Amalekites? Well here, the Jews take nothing, even though legally in the second edict, they have the rights to. They continued to fulfill what had been asked of King Saul long ago. After all this was said and done, the Jews rested and feasted. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters out to all the Jews telling them of this new holiday that was to be celebrated. This was the Feast of Purim. This was to be celebrated and remembered for generations to come that in the face of losing their lives and the name of their people, one person was able to cut through the environments that were against them and save the Jews. The Jews celebrated not because violence took place. They didn't celebrate because 75,000 people had been killed, but they celebrated their freedom and deliverance. How do we celebrate in a world where there's violence, pain, and suffering? I can't be the only person who's asked God this question of why bad things happen when he's an all-loving, all-powerful God. And I don't pretend to have the perfect answer for you today. But what I do know is there's a bigger picture. My mom told me that when she was um, little, she was in Pathfinders in Switzerland, and one of the Pathfinder leaders had gone out to a mountain to set up some ropes because they were going to do some rock climbing and rappelling and she went out super early in the morning by herself and she, set up, she was setting up the ropes, tying anchors, and she ended up falling. She was rushed to the emergency room and she ended up not making it. And all these young pathfinders had to ask themselves this question of why bad things happen when they serve an all-powerful, all-loving God. My mom said that she still remembers what the path what the pastor said at this Pathfinder leader's funeral. He said that, we, that the life we live here on Earth is kind of like a tapestry, but that we see the tapestry from behind. So all we see are these knots and these weird frayed strings and changes of color and none of it makes sense. We see kind of a blurred picture of what it might s- supposed to look like, but we can't quite understand it. But he said, there will come a day when this tapestry is turned around and we'll be able to see the picture clearly. We'll understand why the color changed, we'll understand why there was a knot there and why the string got cut there, and the picture will be clear and it will be beautiful. I'm not sure if that story satisfies the answer that your soul needs, but it satisfied the answer that my mom's young mind needed. God is in control and he is working things out to weave a beautiful picture. Esther only only saw the backside of the tapestry. She saw herself locked into a queenly position with a king who banished his last queen. She saw Haman devise a plan to kill her and her entire people. She saw vengeance. She saw violence. But within Esther's personal environment, she held communion with God. And she held a spirit of faith. When we look at the book of Esther, at her life, We have to recognize the influence of her peripheral environment, of her proximal environment, but at the end of the day, her strength and courage came from somewhere deep within. It came from her personal environment. It came from her fasting, from her seeking, it came from her character. She was able to walk into the king's court, request her people's safety, and if she perished, well, then she perished, but that wasn't up to her. Her own life wasn't as important to her as God's plan. She had faith that even in the f- face of death, she knew God would deliver her people somehow, some way. So, why talk about environment in the book of Esther? It's a wonderful historical account of the preservation of the Jews, it's a wonderful account of many life lessons that we can get. We see a story of Esther's strength and courage, and we want to be a people of strength and courage. We see the consequences of Saul's disobedience and how it causes ripples for years, and we don't want to have those same disobedience and have our consequences ripple for years. We see the encouraging words of Mordecai to Esther, and we seek to find Mordecais in our life that can speak to us in difficult times and give us strength. We see how vengeance has grown in Haman's heart, And when we hold on to ill feelings, they don't just disappear, but they fester and grow. We see King Asherah's grow as a king, going from promoting Haman to promoting Mordecai. With all these great lessons found in Esther, why talk about this book in the context of environment? Because environment's important. It shapes how we think shapes how we feel, it shapes how we dress, it shapes how we talk, it shapes what we eat. We talk about environment all the time. We talk about what healthy environments should look like. We talk about what unhealthy environments look like. Many times, we just grow accustomed to our environment. I've had many friends go overseas to do student mission work, and when they come back, they go through this period of transition, and it's painful. I've heard stories of student missionaries coming back home and they walk into a grocery store and they cry, they weep, they weep because of all the food that's there, because the environment that they had been in hardly had anything to eat. Your environment shapes your values. I have spent a good deal of these past two weeks talking and processing how our environment shapes us, but I think it's time for us to pause and begin talking and processing how we shape environment. Environment exists because we exist, because we create it. And where does it all start? It starts with us. It starts with our personal environment, with who we are, with the character and values that we hold, by allowing God time to shape us. Proximal environments are just environments made up of a bunch of personal environments. Peripheral environments are just environments made up of a bunch of proximal environments. In Esther's story, we find her in a space that we often find ourselves in, a space where we submit to environment. Do you remember what Esther said to Mordecai back in chapter 4? All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces knew that if any man or woman goes goes to the king in the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one who the king holds the golden scepter to, so that they may live. She says, but as for me, I haven't been called the king for 30 days. In other words, Esther was saying, everyone knows how this works. This is the environment that we're in. What if that's the mentality we we're always in? That's just how it is. That's just how our environment goes. What would our lives look like if the current environment had always been respected, if no one tapped into their personal environments to make change in their proximal circles, and if those circles never stepped out to make a change in the peripheral. So today, what are you doing? I found myself fighting the environments I've been in before. I found myself complaining about environments before. But what I found from Esther's story is that although we need to acknowledge our environments, We can't always let them get the best of us. Transitions are inevitable. How many of you guys said that you were five? When I was five, I moved from California to Washington, and that was the first big transition of my life. Then shortly after, I started kindergarten, and wow, that was the biggest environment shock. Then changing schools in third grade, then going to high school then going to college, and then coming here. It feels like my environment's always being changed, right? And then I thought to myself, oh, you know, when I I become an adult, my environment will just kind of mellow out, right? Have you guys experienced that? Have your environments all mellowed out if you're an adult now? No? Okay, good. I have something to look forward to. What I've learned is that I have to embrace these environments, because they can be painful. When I first went to college, there were a few months where I was like, I'm, I don't think I can do this. I think maybe, you know, a degree, not so important. I just wanna go home. Even coming here, it's been a big change. I went from living in a place with all my friends, seeing people all the time, and I don't know if you've known this, but I'm a big extrovert, okay? I am. <laughs> I would even do introverted things with people. So that's that's my kind of extrovertness coming out. And now coming here and realizing that all my close friends aren't close at all. I can call them, but not always. I can hang out with them, but not always. And it's been an environmental shift that I've had to process. We can either choose to fight the transitions or lean, learn to embrace them and lean into them. We often say that God allows us to go through things to grow and change us. But what if we're placed in situations and an environment to help us help the environment grow? We believe in God and we believe that we are created in his perfect image. We believe that a perfect environment was created here on earth. We also believe that that perfect environment was tainted and now we're living in an environment that was not intended for us. So what do we do with that now? Do we fight the environment? Do we ignore the environment? Do we complain about the environment? Or do we choose to reshape it? For the final reflection question, I want to ask you, what are you doing to create a positive environment around you? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to God, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So on earth as it is in heaven, why do we not strive to create a heavenly environment here and now? I don't want us to be like Esther in the sense that she uses her environment to make an excuse. But I want us to be like Esther when she says, for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of God's people, I will go. And if I perish, I perish. We're not called to be constricted by these earthly environments, but to improve them to create heavenly environments through our personal lives and then through those close circles of our friends and then through places and cultures that we live in. We are not here to be shaped by environment, but to shape it. Let's pray. Jesus, we hear your calling on our lives as individuals, as a proximal circle, as a peripheral environment, Jesus we don't want to just ignore it we don't want to be like King Saul and just brush it off and only listen to you part way and then throw some sacrifices out there to make it look like we're being good followers of you Jesus we want to follow you with hearts that say if we perish we perish Jesus I pray that you give us a spirit of Esther a spirit of courage Jesus Jesus We all have different environments that we face. We all have different obstacles. But God, I pray that you don't let us be weak, that you let us be strong, that you don't let us make excuses for why we don't follow your calling in our lives. Jesus, don't let us be a people who let environment affect us in negative ways, but let us be a people who want to shape environment And make it positive for not only ourselves, not only our families, not only our friends, not only for our church, not only for Boulder, but for this earth. Jesus, we pray today that your kingdom come and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.